0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of How to Make a Life. Today, we are talking to Arsh Ali about archaeology. Now, Arsh is the youngest archaeologist in India and the very first Egyptologist in Indi- from India. Arsh, welcome to the show.
1: It's a pleasure being in your show. Thank you so much for your kind invitation.
0: All right. Now, Arsh, just, just for people who don't know, right, um, how old are you and how old were you when you started Uh, your journey in archaeology?
1: Right now, I am 20. But uh, the time when I started with archaeology, it was far, far behind. It was around the age of five or six when I started into history and archaeology.
0: All right. Now, archaeology has been romanticized in many ways. uh, No small thanks to pop culture, right? Now, can you give us a reality check? How many of your days are actually spent doing research? How many of it is spent on the field. Uh, How is uh, actual archaeology similar to or different from what you see on Indiana Jones?
1: Well, yes, uh, Indiana Jones and Lara Croft are quite different from what we do because uh, we don't carry guns, first of all, and we don't have uh, our competitive raiders uh, following us. It's absolutely different. But yes, the way archaeology has been romanticized over the years is quite amazing. And most of the time actually is spent on the table. It's okay. just uh, three or four months of the entire year that we spend on the field. Because uh, unless you don't dedicate the time on the table, analyzing the stuff you get from the field, uh, it's useless to find that stuff because we don't sell them. We don't buy them. It's not that work. Uh, we analyze them in order to understand about the lives of the people who left them. Suppose we get a pottery from an ancient site. So we don't sell it as it has been widely uh, thought about. Uh, we actually analyze it scientifically and we try to understand what was contained in that pottery, how was that pottery made, and what sort of things can we know about the past, about the people who made that particular stuff. So it's all about our field work as well as a lot of desktop analysis and um, scientific analysis.
0: Right. Okay. Now, uh, I want to talk about uh, a particular portion of your work. Right, you, You've been uh, on a quest to establish the existence of Buddhism in ancient Egypt. Uh, how did that begin? How did that start off? And what are the first pieces of evidence that sort of prompted this uh, search? And what do you need in order to confirm it?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, uh, the subject... Egyptian Buddhism. It's quite interesting because uh, I think there was some technical glitch in the middle. So I couldn't understand the whole bit. Uh, Can I just repeat it?
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, how did your quest to establish the existence of Buddhism in ancient Egypt begin? Uh, What were the first pieces of evidence that prompted this search? And what do you think you'll need to confirm it?
1: Buddhism was a study of how Buddhism went into Egypt during the time of Ashoka, Buddhist Mm -hmm. emperor. Because we get a lot of evidence from the Egyptian about the existence of Buddhist communities around the third and second centuries BC. Because even in India, we get a lot of evidence about Greeks who were living in India, and they were following Indian religions like Hinduism or Buddhism. Right. So, obviously, the whole uh, array of people, you know, sort of Greek, was a common term. It was a term that uh, included Egyptians, it included Persians, because at the time, the entire uh, Middle East, it was under Greek occupation. So, the Indians had a common term for those people, the foreigners. They called them Yavana or Yona. So it refers to the Ionians or the Greeks, but it was also used for more generally for foreigners. So we get references of uh, Yona Buddhists or Ion Hindus in the historical period. And then I went to Egypt, I found a lot of evidence. Uh, we get we got reports of, um, you know, papyrus scrolls from the Greek period of Egypt, where we get that more than 10,000 or 20,000 Buddhists were living at a site known as Memphis. And it is very striking that uh, when I was searching through the artifacts in Alexandria in a museum, which is a very famous museum there, Bibliotheca Alexandrina, uh, we got a coin. It was a gold coin. And on that coin was made an impression of four Indian elephants. They were typical Indian elephants. And the king to which that coin belonged, that king was actually a contemporary of Ashoka. So it means that at that time, there was an export and import of Indian elephants uh, that was going on between India and Egypt. Because we need to understand that Indian elephants were the sort of the atom bombs of the time. They were the main machinery that was used in warfare. So obviously, Indians had lots of elephants in the forest. We even get evidence from the arthashastra of Kortilya, uh, and we have an entire section dealing with elephants and how to catch them uh, from the forest and then train them for the army. So, Chanakya is the same person who was a teacher of Maurya, the grandfather of Ashoka. So, obviously, the same thing would have also been followed at the time of Ashoka. And Ashoka would have been using these elephants for his own gain, for the gain of the modern empire, because he was searching for... A neutral policy. Uh, it was, we have to understand that it was from the policy of uh, dham of Ashoka that uh, Pandit Jawala Nehru, our first Prime Minister of India, he got the idea of non enlightenment, you know, the, the non enlightenment organization where you don't need to go with either of the blocs, that is the USSR and the US. So Ashoka had a similar policy, and to achieve that, he used both religion as well as elephants. Uh, To the maximum. So we get evidence of elephants being exported from India to Egypt. We get evidence of elephants being exported from India to Persia, to other places. And all these people, they were giving, you know, they were taking in elephants, they were taking in medicines, uh, herbs, doctors, who were all being sent by Ashoka. So even today, we know that uh, if you see the world of today, uh, India has been exporting COVID vaccines to other places. It has been doing it in the Maldives, in Bangladesh, in South Africa, Brazil, Nepal, Bhutan, etc. So we see that a similar policy was also um, approached about by Ashoka, where we, we know, we, we come to know that he talks about uh, himself sending medicines and doctors to other places for the benefit of both humans and animals. So we know that there was also a sort of animal medicine and human medicine being carried out in other places. So many of the policies that we see were being done by Ashokan, uh, you know, the Ashokan people, especially the Mauryan empire, it's still continued. And we get a lot of influence and a lot of inference from the, uh, the facts that were accumulated.
0: All right. Now, uh, I want to understand uh... You know, you've, you've obviously done a lot of, uh, you've obviously spent your whole life studying history. Now, how much of history do we really understand? How do we complete that knowledge? Will we ever know if that knowledge is complete or do we just accept that like the present, we just can't know everything?
1: History is a bridge, you know, history is a bridge between the present and the future. It is only through the past that we understand how we can make our futures better. Because we learn from the past the mistakes we do. We learn from the past the advantages and the disadvantages. And thus we try to work upon the disadvantages. We try to work upon the weaknesses. And then we try to overcome our future using history. So It's a bridge. So history is not a dead subject. It's a very common misnomer among the people that history is considered to be a dead subject. It is absolutely not a dead subject. It is more concerned about what we live in today. It is about our presence and it is about the future. So uh, it is everywhere, you know, especially speaking about India. Uh, The very uh, facts of our lives, they are rested upon history. The, The religions we follow, the political system we live in. The education we, we, you know, we get in the schools and the universities, because we travel in, uh, even the technology we are using right now, the Zoom technology, everything has a history.
0: Right.
1: Everything has uh, a history of development, a history of the process, you know. It is not the study of dates. It is a study of processes. It is a study of themes. Right. Uh, we come to know how one process occurred right. and then another came in and then another went off and then the third came in. So it is not uh, about differentiating the past into days. It is about understanding the process. Uh, for example, we don't know exactly when the ancient times ended and the medieval began. You know, it wasn't like someone calling from the window. Hey, you see the Middle Ages are coming in. Right. It wasn't like something that it was in the newspapers that welcome to the Middle Ages. Uh, and then there was a date. Yeah. It hadn't been. Because history is all about processes. History is all about the food we eat, you know, the, the language we speak, the script we write, everything has a history. So history is absolutely connected with your present. It is like this, you know, the present and the past connected. Right. And if you understand it, you make your future a better time ahead for you as well as for your future generations. If we know that the Holocaust had happened in Germ- you know, in Germany during the time of the Nazis, So, obviously, we learn from the Holocaust about what shouldn't be done in times of war. If we study about the advent of the British Empire in India, we understand what shouldn't have been done during that time that led to the emergence of the British paramountain sea all over the Indian subcontinent. So it is only through history we understand our present. And then we try to connect it with our future, that what could be the possibilities of our times. So it is only through history,
0: we can analyze ourselves. Fair enough. And, uh, you know, throughout your whole journey, you've learned to read, I think about 20 odd scripts on your own. Yeah. And uh, I want to understand, uh, is there a certain technique that you use that helps you learn languages better? Where do you begin when you approach a new language? And is there a common thread that ties all the ancient languages uh, that you've learned together?
1: Well, uh, learning the languages, I owe it more to my family because uh, I'm pater- paternally Muslim, a- but uh, maternally I'm Sikh. So, uh, you know, it was a commingling of two cultures and two languages, two religions that I came to understand about the balance and the connected, you know, the connectedness that is there, the connectivity uh, between the languages and the scripts. Um as far as the technique of learning languages and scripts is concerned, I would take it to Sanskrit, because most of the time I have been using the Sanskrit script, the Devanagari script, and the language itself, because it's very scientific. It's, it's based on formula. It's a very technical language. So, if you know Sanskrit, you speak it in the true way. Uh, you can easily learn other languages as varied as French and German and Italian and Chinese and Japanese, etc. Because uh, Sanskrit is regarded as the mother of all languages. So, obviously, if you know the mother, you right. absolutely come to know about the daughters and the son. Right. And all these languages, they were part of the Indo-European languages. So, they are part of a family. So, okay. if you learn Sanskrit, you can absolutely learn Indian languages as well as the
0: foreign languages. That is interesting. All right, Now... Archaeology is like a melting pot of multiple disciplines, right? Uh, Can you break down for me what exactly these disciplines are and where they come into use during the course of your work? It's a
1: multidisciplinary approach because archaeology is not a simple subject. It is not a part of history as it is commonly understood among the people. Um, Archaeology is about sciences. It is about languages, computer techniques, uh, psychology, art, architecture, dance, music, etc. You name it and archaeology has it. Because uh, of this fact, I chose archaeology because archaeology allowed me to approach my uh, polymath. You know, I, I, I tend to be a polymath because I love doing stuff in a variety of subjects. So I've been a both a humanities student as well as a science student because you cannot understand humanities without science and you cannot understand science without humanities. You know, the invention of zero, it was from India and it was written in the Sanskrit language, you know, the Arya and the Surya Siddhant of Aryabhat. It was all in Sanskrit. And from that way, we come to know about zero and its use in the decimal system. So you see how science ha- is connected to history, how science is connected to languages. So unless you don't know the original Sanskrit, you cannot understand the context in which the, the invention of zero happened. Similarly, if you talk about modern artificial intelligence, uh, you know, a, a, a number of scientists and a number of uh, engineers, they're using the Sanskrit language and the formulas of the Sanskrit language in artificial intelligence, because English is very incompetent in that way. For example, in Sanskrit, what is written you speak? You know, there's no other way that... A, uh, a-kara would behave like something else in one word and it would behave like something else in another. But in English, you have a lot of silence. You know, A-N-I-F-E is a knife. The K is silent. And then you have a variety of pronunciations. You have C in chemistry as a curve, But then the C in Champagne is sha. So it's, a, it's very confusing, especially for a computer to understand instructions. But in Sanskrit... It is absolutely the opposite. So a lot of artificial intelligence engineers are using the Sanskrit language in computational analysis. They're using it in computers and robots. And we have technologies like Alexa today. So that is taking a lot of uh, input from the Sanskrit language. So it is also part of archaeology. It is also part of archaeolinguistics. And then you come about uh, how we know about the development of ancient technologies. Because Obviously, the dates have been changing and they have been pushed apart back and back. For example, earlier we, we were thinking that cancer is a modern disease, but when there were certain Egyptologists who were working in Egypt and they were doing the CT scans of ancient Egyptian mummies, four to 5,000 years old, they discovered cancer tumors in them, you know, breast cancer, stomach cancer, lung cancer, uh, you know, you name it. And they had a variety of cancerous tumors in Egyptian mummies. So that has shifted back the entire history of cancer to thousands of years. So right. this is another application of archaeology, where we use archaeology as a tool to understand the history of diseases. We understand archaeology as a way of knowing about our presence and then knowing the true causes. You know, it's not the exactness. It's not like science that you, you prove it or you disapprove it. You have a variety of explanations. You can explain it in what way you like, but then you need to have evidence and concrete evidence. Right. And it can be both from the social science as well as from sciences. So it's a variety. It's it's the, you know, the range of subjects within archaeology that makes it very interesting for anyone to pursue it. All
0: right. Now I want to talk about some of the new discoveries that have been happening, uh, especially in the realm of Egyptology, right? And the- This is something that a lot of people know about uh, thanks to Netflix, uh, The Secrets of the Saqqara Tomb. And uh, there was a Netflix documentary on it. And for those who aren't familiar, and correct me if I'm wrong, Harsh, uh, this is a 4,400-year-old tomb, and it's completely intact, which is apparently very rare. And I think uh, one of your mentors, Dr. Salima Ikram, was working on this uh, project as well. Now, I want to understand, why is an intact tomb rare? Uh, How does... One know where a tomb could be, and if we know that a complex can have X number of tombs, what's stopping us from just opening it all up?
1: Well, the documentary itself it was interesting, yeah. and um, it was very interesting because for the first time we discovered lime cub mummies. Yes, so it was very uncommon for Egyptologists to find such lion mummies in Egyptian complexes. We find cat mummies, we find dog mummies, we find a variety of animal mummies, but it was for the first time we discovered lion cub mummies because lion was actually a representation of the ancient Egyptian goddess Sekhmet, who was the goddess of medicine. She was the goddess of war. So the two or three goddesses, they are related to the lion. So they have a lion head in Egyptian iconography. Um, The three questions as to how the tombs are traced, you know, why such complexes aren't exposed to the full, and then third, what makes it unique for that tomb, particularly that was covered by Netflix. So first of all, when we find a, a tomb, it is basically accidental. You know, most of archaeological discoveries have been accidental. Uh, some farmer would have been traveling with a donkey. The donkey would be uh, walking around and then suddenly the leg of the donkey, it gets stuck in something. And then when the farmer tries to retrieve it, he finds something. So, you know, most of the discoveries, they happen this way. And uh, then you have the modern scientific techniques. So, we use the GIS or the geophysical surveys for tracing the tombs. We have lots of Photographic uh, analysis. So we do the drone survey, we do the aerial photography, and we can trace it because you know it's whole desert. Talking about especially Egypt, uh, India is very difficult to trace because you have lots of habitations and it's lushy green. You know the landscapes change very well, but in Egypt you have the desert. So the desert is very easy to trace the monuments. You know it's very easy to trace the tombs. It's very easy to trace the buried buildings from the sands. So it is how the tombs are traced and then they are excavated. But we need to understand that uh, even today, our archeological techniques are not that much competent. Obviously it has to be that in the future, say 100 years or 200 years later, it would be much more developed. So uh, what we do is that we leave it for the future archeologists because by the time they would have better techniques, they would be able to use it better for understanding in a better way about the lives of the people who who built them. So, we excavate a part of the site for our own benefit, you know, for our own use, for our own times. So, we don't or we can't expose the entire site because that will lead to the degradation of the entire context, you know, the the stability or the integrity of the site. So, we do a bit, you know, we take a part and then we excavate it. And we come to know about the extent of the site through that simple excavation. You know, we do a sampling from an entire specimen. You cannot just use this entire specimen for the test. You take a sample. Right. So it is very much like the same.
0: Okay.
1: And that tomb was very unique because in Saqqara, um, you know, I, I talked about the lime cub mummy. It was also a part of that uniqueness. Right. But the, the best part of the tomb was that the colors were intact. And the information from the tomb, it was very much intact. You can talk about the relatives of the dead person for whom that tomb was made. You can talk about about the gods and the goddesses that were worshipped during that time. You can talk about the technologies, uh, the way the tomb was built, the location of the tomb itself in proximity to some of the best pyramids, you know, that are there in Saqqara. So... We come to know about the history of administration because I think that person to whom the tomb belonged, he was an administrator in ancient Egypt. So we get to know about the varieties of information, uh, his wife, his sons and daughters, his family, his mother and father. So obviously it is very much, uh, you know, a goose bumping thing to learn about something like this.
0: That's that's awesome, right? And and we live currently in an age where everything is recorded, nothing is sacred, and the internet can reach out and cancel someone for something they said when they were five years old. Now, what do you think the role of an archaeologist will be 200 years from now? Will people still be digging up stuff from 2020? Uh, will they be uh, you know relevant? Will those artifacts be still be relevant when we have both written records as well as picture and video?
1: Well, uh, archaeology is a huge role. Uh, For example, I was talking about the Arthashastra of Kautilya. So it was also from a manuscript that the text was rediscovered in 1909. So uh, the story goes that uh, the Arthashastra was written in its silent form around the Guptan period. That is around, you can say, 1500 or 1700 years ago. But from that time, we lost the text. You know, it was totally lost after the Gupta period. So, there was a huge gap of about 1400 years between the time the Arthashastra was lost and when the manuscript was rediscovered in a library in Mysore. Right. So, uh, the manuscript was actually discovered from Tamil Nadu and it was in Tanjavur or Tanjore that the manuscript was discovered by a Pandit by a, by a or a priest of a temple in the temple archives. And that ended, he went to the Mysore Oriental Institute in Mysore and he donated the manuscript and he knew nothing about what he carried. Then in 1909, there was an Indologist, Arsham Shastri, Shastri, who accidentally saw the manuscript and he was able to read it and then he came to know that whatever thing he is reading is actually the fabled, lost Arthashastra. And then he started working on it. So he he went all over the country, collecting manuscripts from variety of places in the north and the south and the east and the west. And finally, he was able to have a corpus of manuscripts. So manuscript in turn is a part of archeology. It's archaeology. It's an important source of historical reconstruction. And now you have, uh, you know, 100 years after uh, Shama Shastri's work on the Arthashastra, you have news articles coming in that, you know, in 2014 general elections, the BJP used many of the tactics of the Arthashastra Shastra for winning the election. And even today you get stuff like, you know, when the farmers, uh, the agitating farmers, when they were coming towards Delhi, the government of Haryana, they dug in the roads in the middle to prevent the farmers. So it's all in the Arthashastra Shastra because even the Arthashastra Shastra says that when the you know, when the enemies are approaching towards the capital, you dug in, you disturb the roads. So that will actually slow down the enemy a little bit, and you have time to, uh, you know, go with the fortifications and the preparations. So you see that 100 years ago, it was a lost text in 1909. And then when you talk about 100 years later in 2021, you get an insight about how the text is being used very well by any government, be it the BJP government, even we have Pandit Nehru, uh, you know, claiming and glamouring the Arthashastra, I think a dozen of times in his discovery of India, he was was also influenced by the ideas of Chanakya. So you can have an idea about to what extent archaeology can go and can influence matters of politics and administration. It is totally upon uh, the shoulders of archaeological history that a lot can be achieved You know, uh, why Sanskrit is an important language to be studied, especially by scientists, because whatever texts we know in Sanskrit, most of them are still unstudied. They are unpublished. They have not been studied by any Sanskrit scholars. So we have we have millions and billions of manuscripts in libraries and museums all over the country and abroad and 30 to 30 percent, you know, 20 to 30 percent of those texts, they are related to scientific knowledge and they're still not studied. So obviously that fertilization that can happen between a Sanskritist and a scientist, it doesn't happen normally. So a person can be a Sanskritist, but not a scientist and vice versa. But if a person happens to be both, then only he can understand the true extent, the true knowledge of that particular manuscript. So uh, you don't know what can be revealed you know, what can be um, discovered from those manuscripts and the extent to which that will
0: influence our technology. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Now, you know, archaeology aims to decipher human history from the remnants that we've left behind. And uh, this in turn leads to a better understanding of the present and the future. Can you take us to a time when something you discovered or were working on had a profound impact on your life and your understanding of human civilization currently?
1: Well, uh, it was my, um, not archaeologically, but a little bit related to mummification. Uh, because we know about ancient Egyptian mummies. We know that Egyptians made mummies. It is a very common established fact. Mummies are a famous entity of the ancient Egyptians. They are the representatives of Egyptian culture. Okay. We have mum- movies like The Mummy and The Mummy Returns and The Mummy 3. So you have a lot of uh, stuff even in the televisions. But when I was studying the ancient text of India, I came to know that even in India there was a similar process that was performed by the ancient Indians. So even ancient Indians made mummies of their dead people. But it was not exactly like the Egyptians. It was a little different. Um, in the Valmiki Ramayana you have a shlok in the Ayodhya Khan that is so it says that in a pot of oil, by the ministers, Samvesh Jagati So in a pot or a boat of oil, possibly mustard oil, the body of King, that is Dashrat, was kept by the ministers. So in that single shlok, you have the entire. Uh, picture going on. But what was happening? So if you go to the context, you see that Sri Ram and Lakshman they left for the forest. Bharat and Shatrugan they were in Kakya Pradesh in their maternal home. That is modern day Pakistan and Afghanistan. So that is almost like six months' journey from Ayutthaya, if you can calculate in that time. Obviously right. you don't have you didn't have flights um, right. at the time back then. So it was on horseback. So by the time Bharat comes in and can perform the cremation of his father, the body cannot let go of to be deteriorated. You know, you cannot let it go to be degraded naturally. So you need to preserve it. So obviously, you know that even in pickles, we use oil, specifically mustard oil. So it makes sense that oil is a preservating material. It prevents oxygen and it prevents moisture from entering into the the mangoes in the pickle or the body itself, if you keep it. So, that was a very shocking movement for me because that was the first time we were uh, you know knowing about the existence of mummification even in India. Because as for the tradition, the son has to perform the cremation or the Angeshti sanskar any of the son. So, Sri Ram was the eldest son, but he went to the forest. Dashrat had to do, you know, uh, the cremation had to be done by Bharat. So, Bharat would take almost six months to come back from uh, KK, that is in Afghanistan, to Ayodhya. So by the time the body has to be kept fresh for the cremation to happen. And oil is also a very good burning material. So it would help in the cremation process. So it makes sense. And then you have another evidence from Assam. So in the 12th and the 13th century, there was a kingdom that was flourishing in Assam, the Ahum kingdom. And even there, you have Bunji or the histories of the Assamese people, the Ahom kings, and they also did a very similar process by which uh, they would construct huge tombs. You know, they were like mound tombs, which are known as Naidongs. And by the time the king dies, the construction would start. So, the construction would also take four to six months, you know, the entire tomb to be completed. So, by the time the king was kept in oil and honey mixed in a proportion, and he was kept in that oil, submerged in that whole pool, filled with the mixture. So that would also act, and it would help in preserving the body. So they then would bury the body after the tomb was complete inside the Maidoms. And then even today, uh, you talk about the kings of Thailand. So the thing, the monarchs of Thailand, they consider themselves to be the Raghu They have kings like Rama the 7th, Rama the 13th, and you know they they consider themselves to be connected to Ayodhya. So even there, the king dies, the entire country goes into a, a year or, you know a year-long mourning period. And in that period, the king's body is also kept in a fetal position in a same mixture of oil and alcohol and honey and etc. And it is kept in a fetal position in a huge orb, you know, in a huge goblin uh, goblet like structure. And then it is also cremated in the same way, in a very, very beautiful wooden and gold uh, you know, the funeral pyre. So you see how things are getting connected. So you have Ayodhya, you have Assam, and then you have Thailand, and all the three places are connected to a single thread, that is preservation of the body before cremation. So it was not always that uh, a person would be cremated uh, instantly if the sun is absent. If the son is absent, you need to preserve the body till the time he comes back and he can perform the mm-hmm. Angeshti samskar. That, an, uh, that was an eye-opening for me. You know, it was an eye-opening movement for my working period. And right now I'm working on the experimental approach. So I have two, three fishes and yes. they died naturally and they quake again. So likewise, I did the same in 2017 or 2018. Um, using fish for my Egyptian mummification. This time I have been using the lockdown period, uh, especially in the previous year, to study the experimental approach to ancient Indian mummification. So I have done the same and I have played an entire setup, the fishes in the oil and we had wonderful results actually. So that shows the extent to which Indians had a very well technology of preserving food or preserving the dead before the invention of refrigeration technology. That is mind-blowing, I
0: guess. Yeah, that is mind-blowing. I did not know that we had mummification in ancient India. And that's interesting because now you've been around tombs and mummies since you were a child. And so obviously, ghost stories and stuff probably didn't scare you when you were growing up. But uh, you come across across different stuff like curses and warnings, etc. in Egyptian tombs, right? I mean, Howard Carter's team found similar stuff on uh, Tutankhamun's tomb and legend has it they all suffered some form of misfortune. I don't know how much that is true but uh, how do you deal with this as archaeologists? You know, respecting the sanctity of the site versus wanting to get to the uh, bottom of what's in it? Hmm.
1: It's a nice question because even when I was uh, in the tombs for the first period, you know, when I was... Uh, As a toddler, as a child, I was being entering into the tombs or meeting with the mummies. Even I have the same feeling sometimes, that it can be that the mummy can suddenly get out from the coffin and it can just clap you up in the museum. It will screw you up there. But obviously, you have lots of charms and Hanuman Chalisa at disposal. So it doesn't make any sense. But obviously, for an archaeologist, you need to understand the sanctity as well. Because they are of, after all, you know, the entire thing, they are ancestors. So you need to have a lot of uh, ethnicity, you know, you, you need to be ethical to the mummy. You need to be ethical to the dead person. You need to show that respect. Obviously, it is a, a, a logical thing to think about. But at the same time, if you talk about the curse stories of Tutankhamun's tomb, and how Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon, all those people, they suffered something or the other. How he didn't suffer something directly. Uh, Actually, his canary bird was eaten by a cobra. Uh, Lord Carnival, he died because he was shaving and uh, accidentally he shaved upon a pimple or something like that, and then it became septic and he died of poisoning, blood poisoning. So uh, yes, it can be said that the tomb had some curves because in the course of almost 10 years after the discovery of the tomb, Only two or three people survived. Who were the people to enter the tomb uh, in order to retrieve the treasures. And uh, the curse itself said, you know, there was a curse in the the entrance to the tomb. When the tomb was sealed from the front, on the top of the seal, an inscription was uh, written on the wall. And it said that who shall enter the tomb would have death on the wings coming into him. And then they were also representations of the cobra, the Egyptian cobra. So Howard Carter's canary was eaten by a cobra. That is a very interesting thing. But then you even had lots of media reports from that time. Obviously, when the tomb was discovered, it was a sensation all over the world. So Howard Carter, he gave the exclusive right of covering the tomb to the New York Times. But uh, there were other media agencies as well who wanted to have their shape, sh- their shape of the news. And just for the TRPs, uh, this story of the curse was circulated and it went very well with the common people, with the general audience. And then you have uh, movies coming into Hollywood, you know, the mummy, the original mummy, uh, which was made around 1960s or 1950s, I suppose. And then you have... The re edition, The Mummy and the Mummy Returns. So it was a way by which the general audience was influenced. It was a way by which the uh, Egyptomania was, uh, you know, it's, it spread far and wide in the Western world. And uh, the stories of the curse even are very much believed by some of the modern Egyptologists that before entering the tomb, uh, you know, they have some rituals among the local Egyptian people, especially the labourers. They do something like, you know, chanting prayers and burning incense. They do it. After seeing the face of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Uh, but uh, since then, since 1922, when the tomb was discovered, we uh, didn't find anything as marvellous and splendid as the tomb of Tutankhamun. No complete tombs before the discovery and no complete tombs even since then. So it was the, only the, thing of the tomb of Tutankhamun that we find the tomb was, it, could, it was complete. You know, the treasures were in, intact, the body was intact, it was marvelous, it was fabulous. But uh, the story of the first itself it was rumored by the media at that time. Because they needed to have their share of the TRP. So they had lots of stories, they had lots of things that the tomb, the mummy of uh, Tutankhamun itself, it would rise and it would do something to the discoverers of the tomb. It was like this, you know, it yeah. was a lot of humor and lot of uh, rumor together. So oh, yeah. it was but wonderful. It was a Egyptomania spread far and wide.
0: And uh, you mentioned how the uh, King Tut's tomb was the first was the, or the only complete tomb discovered, but wasn't Sakara also uh, a complete tomb?
1: No, because though it was a tomb, it was an intact tomb, uh, we didn't find that way the treasure we discovered from the tomb of Tutankhamun. It was absolutely very different because Tutankhamun's tomb was a tomb of a king. It was a tomb of Pharaoh you know tomb of a pharaoh and the tomb of an administrator they are very different. You intend to find something very valuable in the tomb of a king as compared to that of an official or an administrator or a priest. So it was only the tomb of Tutankhamun because he was a king, he was a pharaoh, that we find complete treasure, you know, his chariots and his sandals and his mummy and you know his food items, his clothing. Uh, furniture, jewelry, ornaments, it was all intact. So it makes it unique. So we didn't find anything. Likewise, the tomb of Tutankhamun ever since 1922, when it was discovered by Howard Carter.
0: That's, that's interesting. Now, you, you know, you've, you've studied a lot of tombs, uh, mum, mummification. Uh, there's a lot around death and the journey of the soul across uh, as depicted by various cultures. Uh, from whatever you've seen so far and whatever you've studied, what would you say is the most plausible explanation for what the soul is, where it comes from when we're born and where it goes when we die?
1: So is it on the context of the Indian part of Egyptian?
0: From everything that you've seen, whether it's Indian or Egyptian?
1: Well, in the Indian tradition, is very uh, complex. The question of the Atma and its relation with the Brahman or the Paramatma is very complex. So we have the Upanishads discussing about the entity of the Atma itself. So you know, in the Ishavasya Upanishad, you have that is a, that is an Upanishad or a religious text. We have uh, a stroke like you know, Purnamadaha Purnamidam Purna Purnasya Purnamadaya So it talks about the fullna or the completedness of the Brahman. And even it talks about how the universe emerged from that Brahma or the universal soul, and it is also complete. So, obviously, you have different contrary views about the Atma and the Atma. You have different and complete views about the existence as well as the non existence of the Pope. Uh, because, you know, you have Buddhism and Jainism that do not talk about the Atma, they do not believe in the existence of. Uh, a and an atma or an individual soul so indians obviously had a very conscious view of the soul the body and the mind egyptians also had a similar way of uh, understanding the soul so they understood the soul as something consisting of three parts the ka the ba and the ak. so the ka is actually the physical form of yourself you know it is the clone of yours, the physical appearances, the physical characteristics of the person. The ba is actually about the inner, you know, your, your feelings, your emotions, your personality. It is more about that. And the ak is a manifestation. It's a transfigurated soul. So even they had a very similar com- uh, concept of the soul, very much like what we have in India about the manas, the atma, and the buddhi you know, the speech and, you know, they have many, many parts of the soul being discussed in the the Upanishads. So their concept of the Atma and the Egyptian concept of the soul, they find some common roots, but then you need to understand the historical differences between the two. The Indian tradition seems to be much more developed in the way because Egyptian texts are quite incomplete in the way by which the soul is being discussed about. We don't find uh, exact uh, meanings of those phrases, whereas uh, Sanskrit has a continual history in India, so we can fully understand the meaning of the text. Uh, But uh, obviously, if you judge the two, they seem to be connected as well as being uh, unique in their own way.
0: All right. Uh, Now, you know, Egyptology is a pretty vast field, but it's clearly not saturated, right? Uh, How much have we uncovered? How much do you think we've left to uncover? And what are some important discoveries that you're looking forward to in this decade?
1: Hmm. It's a nice question because we have a lot of things yet to be discovered. We have just recovered, I would say, 10% or 5% of what in total Egypt would be uh, hiding from us. We still don't know where the tomb of Cleopatra is located. We don't know where she was buried, the the last queen of Egypt. Uh, She killed herself as per the Roman sources. Uh, We don't know where she was buried, what happened to her, what happened to uh, the dead body. Uh, There's another question of the tomb of Nefertiti. So, Nefertiti was actually the queen and the wife of King Akhenaten, who was the predecessor of Tutankhamun. Now, Akhenaten is a very famous and a very reputed pharaoh or the king because he tried to change the Egyptian faith. So, Egyptians believed in a variety of gods and goddesses. Akhenaten believed in a sort of monism. He believed in the existence of a single god, that is Athen or the sun. So, he believed in a sort of monotheistic faith that was contrary to the polytheism of the ancient Egyptians. And Nefertiti was a wife of Akhenaten. Now, she was a very famous queen. Uh, she held immense power and respect in Egyptian society during that time, but we don't know about her whereabouts. We don't know where she was buried, what happened to her, because um, towards the end of the uh, reign of Akhenaten, we find disturbances happening in the Egyptian way of life, be it the political or the social or the cultural or even the economic. So there is a huge gap between uh, the reign of Akhenaten and the reign of Tutankhamun. Uh, we even find references of the existence of another thing in between Akhenaten and Tutankhamun, but that could be more like a regent for Tutankhamun, like Baram Khan works like for Akbar. So we need to understand where the tomb is located. Then we have another thing that connects uh, Egypt with India. And that is Alexander the Great, because we know that Alexander the Great, when he was traveling back from India, um, he was going back to Greece, and he died in Babylon, that is in modern day Iraq, in 332 BC. After his death, his generals they started fighting amongst themselves for who would control the whole of the empire after the death of the founder, that is Alexander. So civil war broke out, and the three generals, the main generals, they divided the empire amongst themselves. So Ptolemy, who was one of the generals of Alexander, he got Egypt. Uh, there was another general, Seleucus Nicator, who would fight against Chandragupta Moria later on, and he got the whole of the Middle East that was captured, even the territories that were captured by Alexander in the Indian subcontinent. And then there was a third general who got the Greek part, you know, the parts covering Macedonia and Greece and modern Turkey. So we know that uh, when the war was breaking and it was absolutely a very turbulent war, it was a turbulent period of civil war and this, you know, disharmony and political instability in the Alexandrian kingdom. Ptolemy knew about the importance of getting hold of the body of Alexander the Great. He knew that possessing Alexander's body is like having the legitimate legitimacy entrusted upon you. Because if you have the body of Alexander, you can be sure about your legitimacy as his successor. So when the tomb, uh, when the body of Alexander the Great, when it was being marched from Babylon back to Greece, Ptolemy hijacked it, the whole trolley, and then he led it to Egypt where it is said that a tomb, a massive tomb for Alexander was made in Alexandria. That was the capital of Egypt during that time. And then there were people like Julius Caesar coming into the tomb later on and paying their own respects to the great conqueror. But later on, when Egypt was captured and it was conquered by the Christian Byzantine Empire and finally by the Muslim Arabs, the tomb and the body seems to be lost. We don't know where the body is, whether it is in Alexandria or it was uh, made to go somewhere else, whether it went to the Mediterranean, you know, to Italy and to Rome. We don't know exactly what happened to Alexander the Great. So we have a variety of mysteries of ancient Egypt. We have still not discovered to the full the palace of Alexander the Great, uh, the palace of Cleopatra that existed in Alexandria. It is under the sea right now. It is submerged under the sea. So a lot of salvage archaeology and a lot of underwater water archaeologists are working on retrieving the artifacts and at least mapping up the entire complex. So these are some of the areas where people are working right now. There's another very interesting thing which I would discuss for the first time in your platform that uh, you have a queen from Egypt. Her name was Hatshepsut So she is the first female Pharaoh of Egyptian history. Now she sent an expedition uh, 3,500 years ago to a place known as Punt. So Punt was a place where she sent an expedition downstream through the Nile, obviously on boat. And Punt was reputed to be a place of incense. It was a place reputed for its timber and baboons and ivory. So they wanted to have those luxuries. Now, archaeologists and Egyptologists have still not been able to identify the exact locate, the location of Punt. Some say it is near modern-day Ethiopia. Some say, no, it is in Yemen, for example, perhaps in Yemen. Some take it to Somalia. Some take it to Eritrea. So you have lots of places that are the possible locations of Punt. Now, very much interestingly, in the Indian Puranas, if you talk about the Purans, uh, the Bhagavad Puran and the Skanth Puran and the uh, Narak Puran, you have lots of Puranas. There are 18 main Purans, the Maha So in the Puranas, if you talk about the entire cosmography, the entire geography of the world as per the Puranas, you have the entire earth as a, as a huge disk. And this disc is divided into seven concentric circles, each divided by itself by seven oceans. So you have the ocean of milk, and then you have the ocean of curd, and then you have the ocean of molasses. You have the ocean of fresh water, salt water. So it is like this. Now, Jambutvi or Bharat Varsha, it is in the center of that disc. So it is a seventh circle in the center of the whole divided disc. And that is Jambudvi, referring to the Indian subcontinent. And to the south of Jambudvi is Bharatvarsh, referring to our country. So Jambudvi also consisted of Central Asia, China, Tibet, that particular region. And if you go to the south, you have Bharatvarsh, that is India. Now, very interestingly, there is a, there is a phrase which is known as Puntadesha or Punt Varsha, And you have that thing um, as the, seven, the second disc, you know, uh, surrounding the Bharat Varsha. So, Puntadesha or Punt uh, Varsha is very much connected, it seems to be connected to the Punt of Hatshivsul. So, we can have an understanding, that even the Indians were aware about places, they were aware about the existence of Egypt, they were aware about the existence of places like Punt, which uh, people... From Egypt are not being able to understand very much. And we have the description of Punt in the Puranas. It is very interesting, and it is obviously even a very mind-blowing thing that whatever the are finding in Egypt and they're not being able to do so, we have the reference of Punt Varsha in the Puranas. So this is how things go. So obviously, the better you understand two or more cultures, I said it, I owe it to my family. Because you need to connect to different religions, you know, if in Sikhism or Hinduism, you have the concept of Om, um, then it is also very much connected to the concept of Allah in Islam. Because both are Nirgun manifestations of, you know, the God, the Almighty. You cannot attribute any characteristic to that. So you connect it. It happens this way. And then you have another idea. So, you know, this is how connect- it connectivity happens between cultures and the understanding.
0: Yeah that's that's really interesting right and what's kind of mind-boggling to me is how the egyptians did not have a uh, solid record of punt but we did here in india and this takes me back to one of the stories i read as a kid um, again uh, there's that battle of uh, when alexander the great came to india and he bought and he fought this indian king named porus uh, apparently there are no records of porus existing anywhere in indian records uh, in, in 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 our Indian bookkeeping, right? But then they have enough records of him uh, in Greece, in ancient Greece. So why do you think this disparity is, uh, why do you think there was no mention of him at all in India when he was such a big king, but then they spoke about him uh, quite a lot in ancient Greece?
1: Uh, we have a lot of tables at work. For example, Puru is no one but Puru of the Mahabharata from whom the Kauravas and the Pandavas came, Puru and Kuru. Um, you know, when the Greeks came in, they were obviously hearing about these tables. They were hearing about the Ramayana and the Mahabharata because by the time they were in circulation in that part of India, the northwestern part of the subcontinent that uh, Alexandra attacked and he went up to the Biyas River in the Punjab, it was actually a, it was a center of th- where things were happening because it was Gandhar from where Gandhari came of the Mahabharata. So stories were circulating. Now, when the Greeks came, they wanted to have a figure that they can use to show that though the Indians are strong and brave, they were successfully defeated by Alexander the Great. And then he defended him, you know, they became friends later on. So they wanted to have a scapegoat. They wanted to have someone that can represent India being first defeated by Alexander and then being defended. Now Chanakya was very clever because when we have reference of Chanakya in the Mudra, Mudra Rakshas of Vishakatar that was written 400 years after the life of Chanakya supposedly, uh, we find reference of Alexander meeting Chanakya. And Chandragupt himself, he was a soldier in the army of Alexander the Great, so he was on close terms with the Greeks, and they together defeated. Dhananand of the Maghabian kingdom. Now, after defeating Dhananand, Chanak switched sides, he then turned against the Greeks. So obviously, you have two of the greatest people of the Indian history connected with Alexander the Great. Hora actually has no reference in Indian history, he has no reference in the Puranas. We don't even find reference of Alexander the Great in the ancient Indian shastras, especially the Puranas that we speak about. But we have it in the in the local traditions, in the Sanskrit texts, and etc. But the literature, these tables, the stories. So I think that Porus was no other but a manifestation of the Indian people. Uh, that first he was defeated, and then he was friended by Alexander the Great. It is a way of showing historical authority and historical uh, dominance of the Greeks over the Indians, very much like what the British did when they came to India, that we find references and paintings and woodblock printings of uh, Britannia, that is the representation of England, receiving the shastas from the Brahmins, uh, showing that Brahmins are willingly submitting their culture and making goddess Britannia the guardian and the protector of the Indian culture. So it is a way of political dominance. It's a way of showing political dominance, as you see in the text of the tweet
0: writers. Okay, I want to I get back to that, but then in, uh, in, in a bit, all right? Now, I want to talk about what's happening presently. What is, what is the archaeology world been up to during the lockdown? Has on-site work completely stopped? Has everyone retreated into research? Or are digs and discoveries still going on in full swing?
1: Uh, No, it didn't stop. Uh, Many of the places it it did, yes. But in the remote places, especially in the villages, the things were continuing. Now, they were not as large-scale as it would be in normal days, but, uh, you know, things were going. Work was being done on the field as well as on the desktop as well. It was both the tabletop analysis as well as the uh, excavations that happened. You still have uh, newspaper articles coming in from Odessa that uh, very recently near the Jagannath temple in Puri, the ASI has discovered remains of another complex, uh, very much near to the temple complex, itself, the the Jagannath temple complex. So things actually um, happened and they are still happening in the the Corona period. But uh, if you talk about the other parts of the world, if you talk about England and if you talk about the U.S., Uh, Yes, even their work is continuing, but it's also in a very small scale because universities are empty. The students are coming, and we don't have the people, uh, the right people at the right place at the right time, because uh, everything is very much scattered. So whatever thing is going on, it's very much on a small scale. It's very much unorganised because of the disturbance. But we hope that in the in the upcoming season in 2021, we would be able to continue with the work.
0: All right. And, uh, you know, what does the ecosystem of archaeology look like? What, apart from archaeologists, what are the other support structures uh, in the ecosystem? Where does the funding come from? Who are the other uh, key players? And what is the best way for a budding archae- archaeologist to become one and be able to do meaningful, impactful work?
1: Archaeology is uh, basically the excavations. They are funded by government institutions. They are funded by museums. Uh, most of the time, we have university students and university funding the excavations. Many number of times, we have government agencies working. So we have the ASI that is wholly funded by the government of India. You have state archaeology departments. So each every state, every Indian state has its own archaeological department. So they also get receive the funding from the state governments of the respective states. Uh, university students also do the same, college students, even now these days, uh, even school students are engaged in archaeological uh, research and studying, if not excavation. Um, if you talk about the various parts of archaeology, the various organs, uh, so to speak, then I would say that uh, it is both a uh, representation of the interaction between the public and the archaeologists. Unless and until you do not have the respect or you do not have the acceptance of the local people uh, who are living at the site where you are excavating, you cannot do much. You need to have the interaction and the help of the local people. So most of the laboring work is actually done by the local people. Uh, They get it as a source of income. So they have a very huge and a very uh, good Sum of daily wage system that is around five hundred or six hundred rupees a day, and you work for five to six months, so you can calculate the income a uh, labor can get in that particular remote part of the country. So for a villager, five hundred or six hundred rupees sum in a daily basis. So we actually get to have an our hands on improving the economic situation of the place as well. So, a lot of money gets filtered from the government to the people, and so it is also a way of generating income, if not for a long period of time, but yes, it is. Then you have a lot of scholars, because archaeologists are different from historians. People are both, some people are both historians and archaeologists, but most of the time they are different. Archaeologists are the people who retrieve the artifacts, the sources from the soil. Historian's job is to study that source and reconstruct history. So that is two way round. So archaeologist is like a waiter who takes the order from the customer and the historian is like a chef in the kitchen who would take that order and he would make something out from that. So we have this interaction of archaeology and economy of the place where the excavation is going on. We have the interaction of uh, the relationship of archaeology, the sociology uh, between the different social groups that are, existing in that particular place where the excavation is going on. And then you also have instances of archeological excavation being taken into account by the courts, the justice courts. Uh, very recently, you know, in 2019, the Ram case was resolved by the Supreme Court of India. And there also the honorable court, it took the uh, judgment on the basis of whatever was found by the ASI at the site. In the course of three seasons of excavations in the different times. So, obviously, it also has a huge significance as an evidence in court proceedings. So, this is the extent to which archaeology uh, plays a role in the lives of the people, especially the, the, the general audience, the research scholars, the politicians, the administrators, etc. Et
0: and,
1: and if you want to be a budding archaeologist, uh, we need to. We need to be very much um, be interested in the past because if you want to be a budding archaeologist, you cannot be a simple excavator. You need to be very much aware of what you are finding, what stuff you are studying, how can you use that artifact for reconstructing the past. It is very important to understand the significance of corroborating the evidence you get and using it for reconstructing the past.
0: Okay, and Uh, So, you know, before we close out, Arsh, I want to talk about something that's uh, happening uh, Well, as we speak, right? We live in a world where all the information we seek is available at our fingertips, but we've also realized that some of that is fake news. And I'm sure more than a handful of people are wondering how much of history is fake news, how much was written by the victors, so to speak, and how would we know if it were true or false? And with technology, do you think the amount of fake news is actually going to go down in the future?
1: Well, yes, the amount of fake news is uh, absolutely increasing. We need to be very much aware of what we read and from where we read. Because there are a lot of, uh, I may say, um, partiality happening right now. And that leads to social unrest and social dissatisfaction, especially in the time of the lockdown. We have seen that there was an increase in fake news and uh, hate speech among the people, especially social media. Now, I'm someone who doesn't use social media very frequently, so I'm off from that situation. I love being uh, up from that social media thing. But uh, I would say that, um, you know, in the upcoming times, history is going to be more and more important subject because the way by which we see the dilapidations happening, the way by which we see a lot of uh, infrequencies happening in the understanding of the past, it is important. Dialogue is important. If somebody would say that Aurangzeb was a cruel king and he killed people, especially the non-Muslims, uh, in the pretext of spreading Islam, they, you, you have another dialogue saying that no one, it was a good king and he even donated something to the temples, he made uh, some temples, he, he constructed some temples, so you have various views of thought. You cannot stick to one and uh, you know disagree with the other. You need to be very neutral in your approach. You cannot stick to one ideology or one approach of studying history. It is not the way by which the truth is revealed. Truth is revealed by impartiality. Even if you know that something uh, truthful can come from an ideology that you don't like or you're not very much aligned to, then also take it and use it for your understanding of the truth. Because the objective of most of our discussions today, I suppose, is not the reveal of the truth. It is about ego. Because most of the time when people discuss things like these, they tend to show more their ego than their knowledge. Ignorance comes in the way. And that is not how truth is revealed. You know, this shlok from the Maha Upanishad, why it was chosen to be the national motto of our country. Truth alone primes. Truth always wins. We have to keep this in mind that even, you know, today is the death anniversary of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. So some people would say that, no, no, the RSS or the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, they were in the uh, play of uh, assassinating the Mahatma. And then you have other people saying, no, Nathuram Ghat said, w- wasn't the assassinator, they were someone else. But then why would you let it happen that something like this would lead to the disintegration of the Indian people, the Indian country? You know, it's a dialogue. We cannot be a country who can use our past to divide ourselves. you know, It has never happened in history, in world history, where a country uses its glorious past to destroy its future. We cannot let it happen. I'm not a Congress person and I'm not a BJP person. I'm just an Indian. I am an Indian, an Indian who respects the constitution, who respects the ideals of the constitution as well as the founding fathers and mothers of the constitution, the Indian movement. You know, everyone from all walks of life They engage themselves to the national movement, irrespective of their religion, region, caste, creed, etc. Politics is important, but I think that the time when politics leads to political disintegration, it needs to stop. And then you have uh, people uh, saying things which didn't happen exactly. You know, it's just from the air things come in and then people accepted that truth. It is absolutely important for us to realize that before we accept something, we have to be very much skeptical about it. We need to investigate and we need to find the way by which that news was uh, formulated, whether something like it happened or not, and what were the forces that were at play during the occurrence of that event, say, if it happened. So we need to be very much uh, critical in our thinking, we need to inquire about our our surroundings. This is the meaning of a citizen. You know what what it means to be a a citizen. A citizen is someone who is aware about his or her political power, about his responsibility towards the country and towards oneself. He is someone who inquires about his surroundings. He inquires about how the government functions. He inquires about the happenings of the society, of the culture. That is the meaning of the citizen. Citizen is not no, someone who does is used during the voting times. Citizen has a very much huge meaning than what is uh, supposedly believed by the people. We are the citizens of the Indian Union and we need to understand what our constitution actually says. We need to go more with the positiveness than the negativity. We need to go more with the unity than the uh, divide. That happened, you know, India has already suffered in 1947 the divide between the Hindus and the Muslims through the partition of the country. We talk about the Akhand Bharat, you know, the undivided India. So undivided India can only be achieved if there is unity among the people. We follow the ideas of the constitution. Whatever we know is true is bound to be true. Truth is truth, you know, you cannot make it false. Satyamibadhyate, I say
0: Question everything, right? And so, Arsh, with that, thank you so yes. much for uh, taking the time to sit down and talk to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure learning about your work and where you think uh, things are headed in, whether in terms of archaeology or in terms of uh, human civilization on its own. So, thank you, Arsh.
1: Thank you so much. And wishing you are very, very uh, healthy times ahead. I hope that uh, uh, Mr. Parag Murali, as well as the audience, would be able to take some heedings from our discussion today. Believe what is bound to be delayed upon. Take inquiry into your hands. You need to inquire about what's happening. That is the meaning of modernity. Modernity is not the clothes you wear or uh, if you go to the malls and you watch movies. The modern age is about the intellectual process it is about the development of the mind we need to be modern we are bound to be modern only when we have a scientific mind and we think very neutrally very impartially about whatever things we think about whatever beliefs we have and whatever things we find uh, that are happening in our surroundings we are modern in that way and as a citizen of the country me you and all the people are bound to respect the constitution and the glorious history it contains. The history of the Indian people, I've been studying almost all the cultures of the world and I haven't find anything as glorious as India. Sanskrit is, I think, the, the real Deva of It is bound to be the language of the gods. No language can challenge Sanskrit in its sanctity. Sanskrit is a language as beautiful as none other. I can assure you that. And I can even sign an epitaph in that way, actually. So we need to be um, uh, respecting and we need to be very much proud about our culture and heritage. But then at the same time, we need to use it constructively in a positive way for our country. Sanskrit can be used as a language of unity because it was used all over the Indian subcontinent irrespective of the languages or the people or the religions. We have scholars who are Muslims studying Sanskrit. We have even in the Tamil land uh, the priests using Sanskrit as a language, even in the Northeast, Sanskrit had a very refuted position. Uh, even in Afghanistan and Pakistan, China, Japan, you have discoveries of Sanskrit texts there. So Sanskrit is a, a language that unites us, and that is a language that is the real babe of So I hope that everyone would be able to take heed from our country, our Bharat, our India, and the glorious culture it has, and use it positively for our country.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Ash. And it was really it was a, it was a real pleasure talking to you. You take care of yourself.
1: Thank you so much.